look at the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 1, verse 1. Now, the ancients loved pots. Just to clarify, I didn't say the ancients loved pot. They might have. We really don't have record of that. But they loved pots. Why? Because this was the Tupperware of the ancients. And what's fascinating about something like this is if you go to all the archaeological sites around the world, anywhere from uh, Egypt and the the tombs and uh, uh, Pompeii and Qumran, uh, places like Jericho and and Masada, it's, it's all fascinating places because through this, you were able to learn about the lives of the ancients. Why? Because this not only held for them what they needed day by day, their food, the content of their lives, it it stored up things like water and wine. It stored up things like medicine and and things they needed for provisions of times of, of famine. And so that is a vital aspect of the ancient world. And the thing about clay pots is they're, they're, they're amazing because they're, they're very hard to destroy. And the simplicity of storing things year after year after year. In fact, they find that some liquids actually help solidify and strengthen this very thing, but they're not indestructible. And what's fascinating is that the, the writers of Scripture use objects like this to, to convey to us the most fascinating points about life and our relationship with God. And one of the more intriguing texts comes from one of the key figures of our, of our book that we'll be focusing on. It comes from King David. And he writes this as a prayer to God. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak of sorrow. My soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years of, of groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction. My bones are weak. I am forgotten as though I am dead. I have become like broken pottery. Has there ever been a time in your life where this is how you felt? That the thing that you hold so dear, that holds the content of your life, begins to feel a sense of fracturing. What was that like? What was that experience like? And oftentimes in life we think that we've received the most burdens we can ever receive, and yet life does this interesting thing to us. It throws us a curveball. David writes simply, I feel like broken pottery. there been time in your life like this? A time of absolute brokenness. That's going to be the focus of our text this morning. For many of us, we felt that sense of physical brokenness before, but our text is going to focus on this deep emotional and spiritual brokenness. So let's jump into this text. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. There's a certain man of Ramathim. A Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tahu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other was Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Well, I will take polygamy for 5,000, Alex. <laughs> what do we do with this awkward text? We learned that there's this man named Elkanah that had 
two wives. What we're going to quickly learn is that his first wife, Hannah, Elkanah loved at the very depth of who he was. But unfortunately, Hannah was unable to produce for him a child, a male heir. And we have to keep in mind the context of this day. Now, if we were to, to focus on this today, we would, we would view this as something that we wouldn't put against this woman. But in this day and in this time, this woman's struggle was a sense of brokenness. The society would have looked at Hannah as if she was broken physically. We would not use those terms. And most likely what was the case was Elkanah, as he loved his first wife, Hannah, and as he desired that she produce a child, well, you had to have a child for your family to continue. It was important in this day, more specifically a male heir. What do we remember from the story of Abraham and Sarah? That although God had promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son, they were impatient. It was important enough for them to have a son that he sleeps with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, and has a son. And so a son is important for this time. And so what was most likely the case is after years and years of trying, Hannah not able to produce a child, Elkanah chooses to marry another woman named Peninnah bring forth children so that he could pass on his name. What's always fascinating is that we look at something like polygamy in the Bible and we think, ooh. So when we look at something like this, we don't necessarily think it's something that God endorses, that God is giving the thumbs up for. In fact, we need to remember that marriage is a man-made thing. God created us to be in lifelong partnerships. Marriage, the boundaries and rules of marriage, is something that we as human beings have created. So I love when someone says, hey, we need to get back to the biblical form of marriage. I always like to joke, well, do you mean polygamy? Or do you mean like where you're the overbearing patriarch in your family and your wife has no rights whatsoever? I mean, if we really want to be biblical, then we should do that. And what's fascinating is that if you read the Old Testament law, if we're really going to be biblical Christians in our marriage, according to Deuteronomy, a man would have every right to divorce and pass on his wife if she was unable to bear children. So we're going to be biblical. But we learned something about Elkanah in this moment. That he is faithful to his wife. He loves his wife, although he had to produce an heir. But Elkanah is not the focus of the story. The focus of the story is Hannah. A woman. A woman who is struggling through the very existence of what it means at this time to be a woman. The vitality of who she is depends on her bringing forth the child. And so she is unable to do this. And so in every sense of the word, Hannah feels a sense of failure. She feels a sense of brokenness in her life. And the story is not going to get any better. Look at verse 3. Year after year, this woman went up from his town to worship the sacrifices to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were the priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give a portion of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why do you not eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more than you than ten sons? Now it's important for us to understand the context of this text. We need to remember that A, that 
Israel is not a country yet, which means B, there is no city of Jerusalem where there's a temple where they go to worship. So where do they go to worship at this time? Well, they went to a village called Shiloh. And Shiloh was the tabernacle, the meeting tent of the people where they would go and annually they would offer a sacrifice to God. And what would happen as they would come into this uh, this town, they would offer this sacrifice and what would happen is they would take the, the visceral fat and blood and they would offer that up to God. It was this sense of you're giving God the lifeblood of this animal. Everybody ready to go eat lunch now? No? And then the priest would proceed to cut this up into portions, and a priest would take a certain portion, a certain portion would be given to God, and a certain portion would be given back to the family. It was this idea that we give the best to God, God is giving back to us, and then the family would then take that meat, and they would have a feast together for the Lord. And so as if this wasn't awkward enough, Elkanah didn't help his case because, um, you know, consuming meat in this time was a very important thing because it was so rare, it was something to celebrate. And so while they're having this huge feast and festival, Elkanah is clearly year after year giving better portions to his first wife, Hannah. And so in some sense of the word, do you feel bad for Peninnah? She's kind of like the oddball out. She was forced into this awkward marriage to marry a, a man that already had a wife. And not only on top of that, but in front of everybody, he's giving more to his first wife, Hannah. But then we quickly learn what? No, don't feel bad for Peninnah. She's a bully. She's a bully in the textbook type of way. Why? Because she's constantly berating Hannah and her sense of brokenness in her life. And the text tells us that she does this year after year, provoking her to the point of tears where she would not want to eat. And so in every sense of the word, Hannah is broken emotionally. She's broken emotionally because here is a woman who wants to experience uh, giving life to her husband, giving life to her family. And so she's publicly disgraced for her inability to have children. And on top of that, her husband marries another woman. Imagine that. And on top of that, the woman that he marries is just producing children like it's going out of style. And so she feels absolutely broken. And yet this woman berates her year after year after year. Hannah is broken emotionally. And poor Elkanah, well, the dude is just an idiot. Let's just be honest. He looks at his wife when she's crying and he says to her, Honey, why are you crying? Aren't I better than you, than than ten sons? No, you belligerent idiot. Why would you say something like that? Guys, we can relate to this in this space. Why? Because at some point in our lives, in our marriage, our wives have been upset about something, and we had the notion that the best thing for us to do in that moment was to speak words, profound words, instead of just sitting there and minding our own business, maybe holding our wives, maybe crying with them, and just shutting our mouths. But Elkanah doesn't get it in this moment. He says to his wife, am I not better to you than ten sons? A little quick note, pastoral care note. Uh, When someone is going through tragedy, um, don't say stupid things to them. Those stupid things usually include something like, I know how you feel. No, you don't. God has a plan. It will get better soon or just among some of the stupid things that you can say to somebody when they're facing tragedy. But Hannah feels alone. She's broken emotionally, and on top of that, her husband doesn't get what she is feeling. The narrator wants to to point out to us that Hannah's name means grace. But she's quite sorrowful in this moment. I wonder if we can connect to Hannah. Maybe not necessarily in physical barrenness, but, but maybe we can. But for many of us, we've experienced barrenness in our life. Spiritually, emotionally, relationally. 
Sometimes it's one thing, sometimes it's a multiplicity of things, of work and and family and careerism and relationships and finances and illness and unfulfilled hopes, on and on. And there's been times in our life where it's been swirling around in this moment of chaos and fear and conflict and uncertainty. And we have felt this overwhelming sense of emotional and mental brokenness in our life. That's a dark and lonely place if you've been there. It's a place of despair and anguish. It's a place where strength has failed and our bones grow weak. We feel like broken pottery. Look at verse 9. Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed for the Lord and wept bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son. And then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be placed on his head. For Hannah, this has reached a boiling point. All this is swirling around her, and so she stumbles out of the tent, out of the place that they're meeting, and she goes to the mouth of the tabernacle, this worship place of God, and she begins to pour herself out to God. Hannah is broken spiritually. She's broken spiritually because she's wondering in this point, what is happening? Why am I feeling this? Why is all this happening in my life? Where is God in this moment? Have you ever been there before? The narrator uses the Hebrew word mar to describe her feelings. It means greatly distressed or in anguish. This is the same word that the Old Testament writers described of the people of Israel were crying out in anguish in the slave pits of Egypt. He wants to communicate she is so absolutely sorrowful. She's afflicted to this point where she is at the feet of God's tent asking God if he would just simply make himself known. A quick side note, something theologically we probably need to wrestle with is in verse 6 where it says, Because the Lord closed her womb. It says this, I would consider us to challenge a few things. First and foremost, we need to remember that the theological conclusions of a narrator of a Bible doesn't necessarily come to the same theological conclusions we come to today. That an understanding in this time that they would view God as the chess player moving all the pieces around the world. So God is literally to cause of everything that's happening, including closing this woman's womb. We probably would not come to the same theological conclusions. But another question to wrestle is, could it be that God possibly did close her womb because God wanted to do something great through this woman and the child he would give her? That is a good theological question to ask. But we need to also be careful not to draw all sorts of assumptions about what God does and does not do in this world. But nevertheless, Hannah offers this profound prayer to God. It's this prayer that you can see is just coming from the depths of who she is as an individual. She begs God not to forget her, but to remember her. She begs God saying, God, give me a son. And this is key. I will give him back to you. I will give him back to you. I'm not going to keep him for myself. I'm not going to let this thing that would heal me and bring life into my existence. I'm not going to bring it and just keep it for myself. I will give it back to you, God. This is a profound vow she is making to God. 
And I love how when she's praying this, she's not using all the right theological language. We need to remember that when we pray to God, God doesn't necessarily care about the language we're using. God just wants to see our hearts. And that's what she does in this moment. It reminds me of one of the most profound parables that Jesus ever taught. It was the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the story goes that a Pharisee and tax collector walked into the temple. A Pharisee, remember, a Pharisee is this religious person uh, that would follow all the rules. And, and Jesus says that this religious person says this prayer to God. Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, crooks, adulterers, or heaven forbid like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and tithe all my income. Jesus says that he offers this prayer to God standing. But in the corner, laying prostrate on the ground, Jesus said, is a tax collector. The most despicable man in this day and age. And Jesus says that this man lives this prayer to God. God, give me mercy. Forgive me, for I am a sinner. And Jesus does something interesting in this moment. He says, it was the prayer of the tax collector, not the prayer of the Pharisee that was heard. This Pharisee goes before God with such smug arrogance, this pride. And this tax collector goes before God absolutely humble. I see the the echoes of Hannah in Jesus' story. So it makes me ask the question, where do we go and how do we approach God in crisis? Do we approach God with this downright sense of arrogance and egotism in our life that God is going to do exactly what we want to do? That God is the deity that makes things happen in our life. And if God doesn't do that thing, well, we're going to do the thing that we want to do in the first place. And if God doesn't do the exact thing that we want to do, well, where is God? Why doesn't God exist? Why isn't God making this happen in our life? approach God with arrogance or do we approach God with humility? I love the prayer of Job. After Job uh, lost his business, after he lost his home, after his children were literally murdered to death and his wife is telling him, curse God and die. Job says to his wife, do I both praise God in the good and in the ugly times of my life? No, I give God grace and love and worship In all times, do you approach God in arrogance or do you approach God in humility? You see, when you approach God in humility, you're like this tax collector that comes before God, that knows that God is the provider of all good things, and you're willing to bear yourself before God that you might receive. And that's what happens to Hannah in this moment. She's about to experience the healing power of God's love. Because no matter how great our sin is, no matter how bad our choices might be, there is nothing too disgusting for the God of creation. There is nothing so far out of the bounds of God that God is not willing to go to where we are, to receive us as we are, no matter how broken we might be. God desires to overwhelm us with grace and hope and gentleness. God does not receive us by pushing us further down with judgment, but God receives us with love. God receives us. He heals our soul. He mends our spirits. So how do you approach God? With humility or with arrogance? Look at verse 12. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but no voice was heard. Eli thought she was drunk. And he said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. When I was a sophomore in high school... 
part of the JV team, we received what you would, you know, call hazing nowadays that's frowned upon, and I received the most interesting form of hazing. After football practice, um, I went into the locker room, and as was the custom, I would shower, and then after showering, get back in my car and go home. But this particular time, as I was showering, and sorry for making you throw up in your mouth by thinking about me in the shower, I was ripped out of the shower butt naked taken through the locker room and thrown out and I hear the door lock behind me and all of a sudden that wasn't the worst part the worst part was I started hearing snickering and giggling and I turned around covering my naked self in the best possible way I can to see both the JV and the varsity cheerleading squad standing right there that awkward moment in your life this is an awkward moment I love this awkward moment because here is Hannah in this beautiful moment pouring her heart out to God and Eli the priest thinks she's drunk. That's the humor of scripture in this moment. What's so fascinating is that Eli should have been paying attention. He should have been doing pastoral care when he saw this woman come up and begin to pray to God. But instead, it shows us a little bit about this day and age and this time that people of God weren't necessarily worshiping God in the most uh, fervorous way that we can think of. And so Eli thinks this woman is drunk in this moment. Look at verse 15. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart and soul to God. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of a great anguish and grief. And Eli answered her, go in peace and may God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something and then her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah and the Lord remembered her. In the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. I love this moment where Eli is immediately shocked into reality that he thinks this bumbling drunk woman is actually not a bumbling drunk woman at all, but this woman that is just pouring her heart and soul out to God. And you've got to understand Hannah's grace in this moment. Because all of us would have not been kind to Eli in this moment. If you had been accused of, of being drunk when you're literally at this emotional and spiritual breaking point in your life, but Hannah's so gracious, she's like, uh, Eli, I'm not drunk. <laughs> I'm actually just pouring my heart and soul out to God. And Eli quickly makes up for it. He almost gives this prophetic statement saying, God will bless you in this endeavor. And what do we learn? We learn that Hannah and Elkanah, they go home, they play a few rounds of Candy Crush, and nine months later she has a baby. (laughs) But there's something important about this text that we need to recognize, and it's the fact that Hannah's demeanor and her soul is transformed before she even conceives a son. We need to make note of that. Before she ever receives the son from God, before she ever sees the promise that God has fulfilled, her soul is immediately transformed because she's been in the presence of God. We think that the only way that our relationship with God and our hope in God can be changed is when we get from God what we want from God. But instead, Hannah was in the presence of God. She received that hope and she was transformed. That's something we need to understand. Are we entitled in our expectations of God? Or is the mere presence of God enough to give us hope and love? And the story's not over with. Why? Because God gives her a son. And she names him a very interesting name. Because I 
ask the Lord for him. You see, God desires to give us things in life. Jesus promises that God is a good father who gives good gifts to his children in love. What does Jesus say? He says, ask and it will be given, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. God desires to give to us. Are you going to God in prayer? Are you asking God for the things that desperately yearn for your heart? And are you recognizing when that thing happens that God has done this? God is the one that provided. One author put it this way. Our deepest longings often reflect the upside-down kingdom that God has in mind. Not that Hannah's baby was the key to everything, but that with a bit of divine translation and midwifery, Hannah's faithful longing could birth a new voice of hope to guide God's people. The kind of deep longing that brings our brave and honest prayers to the surface has roots in the depths of God's kingdom. God uses our passions to build something new. What are you bringing to God in prayer? And our story caps off here in verse 24. After Samuel was weaned, she took the boy with her. Young as he was, along the age of three with a a bull, an ephon of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli. And And she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked for. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshiped there. You see, the story is not over because the vow isn't fulfilled. It was a vow to God of God, give me a son and I will give him back to you. And this woman is amazing. In the text we didn't read, it said that Samuel was three years old when she took him to Eli. It says she weaned him until she was three years old. Translation, she breastfed him until she was three years old. All the women in the room are like cringing. can't imagine that happened. But at three years old, she did the best she could. She raised him. She taught him how to walk, how to speak. She taught him how to do all the things. And at three years old, she gave her child to God. Can you imagine? And so this story is about the faithfulness of God. It's about that God is faithful to his people. That God desires to give us things that will fulfill our lives to better who we are, to make his kingdom better in this world. But this story is also about the faithfulness of a woman. A woman who is faithful to the Lord that gave to her. Three years old, she gave her boy to God, and she walked away. Could you do that? I don't know if I could. And so that's the question I want us to wrestle with as we we cap off our conversation this morning. We serve a God who gives good gifts to us, that blesses us beyond measure. And what is our response to God? Is our response to God faithfulness? Or is our response to God white-knuckled fists? See, many times God blesses us overwhelming in life. God gives us that new job. He gives us that home. He gives us that car. He gives us the things that we need to be provided for. He gives us those opportunities to advance in who we are as a family, as an individual, in our careerism. But do we respond to God with faithfulness, giving those things back to God, or do we respond just like this? With our time and our priorities and our resources 
our dreams. You see, faithfulness is giving to God without second thought. Faithfulness is giving to God freely and abundantly, knowing that the one who gives to us will continue to give to us in life. Faithfulness is giving freely to God. So may Hannah speak to us from the echoes of time this morning. That the God that gives to us, we can give back to in love and in faith. A table of brokenness is not the end. Because we learn that the God who observes and journeys with us as we experience brokenness in life desires to also take brokenness and make it whole and new. And so I want you to consider for just a second, what is that thing? What is that thing that you are white-knuckling and keeping from God? What is that thing that is keeping you from truly having faith in the one who says, follow and trust me? Who is the one that you need to place your hope and trust in? What is that sense of brokenness in your life that needs to be made whole this morning? Hannah offers this beautiful prayer to God as he made her life whole. My heart rejoices in the Lord, and the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My, my mouth boasts over my enemies for the delight in my deliverance. There is no one like a holy Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our Lord. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down from the grave and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He sits them in a, as a prince. He inherits for them a throne of the kingdom. What is that thing that you need to bring to God? What is that one thing that is broken? What is that one thing that you're white-knuckling? Take a few minutes in your seat to pray about that one thing. And then what I ask you to do is to come up to this table of brokenness. Take a piece of pottery. Write on there that thing. Or maybe you need to draw something that reminds you of it. And after you've written that thing or drawn that thing, I want you to take this back to your seat and in a quiet moment lift that thing to God. So may we come to the table of brokenness and may we leave with the hope that God desires to make us whole.